Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Kincaid and Breckenridge Highlights podcast uh, from today's show, which was Pi Day, March the 14th. We talked to, uh, uh, I guess, a spokesperson for a group of businesses that have written a letter to the Alberta government saying, hold off on any more policy announcements for now and let's sit down. We've got some ideas about how Alberta businesses can get through this economic slump a bit easier. We also talked about the huge cost and the, the toll exacted by countries hosting the Olympics, uh, stories about uh, entire neighborhoods being demolished in Brazil to make way for the Olympics. What good really comes from hosting these uh, monstrosities? We spoke with uh, one prominent economist who's written a lot about this issue. Uh, you can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge. We're on weekdays, Monday to Friday, 930 to 1230, right here on News Talk 770. Opinionated, provocative, Kincaid and Breckenridge. Roger and Rob want to hear from you. 974-8255. That's 974-TALK. Or text them at 770-770. Roger Kincaid, Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. I'm Roger. Uh, that's Rob. Got a little peanut butter on toast to start the day, Rob. Proteined up and ready to roll. All right. <laughs> um, listen, this is this is uh, dire times for a lot of businesses in Alberta. There's certainly um, no shortage of of stories of of you know how this uh, the economic situation our province is in right now is being dealt with in various towns by various companies by various different business interests. Um, and you know we got some red numbers on the board today as far as uh, oil goes, the stock market goes. So. Uh, listen, there, there's a lot of unease, and if it looked like last week we might have the uh, nose of the jet pointed upwards, it's kind of leveling off, maybe pointing down again. Um, and so that's why you see stakeholders in Alberta business um, trying to do what they can to influence this government in the direction that they believe Alberta needs to go in order to get back on track. You know, well, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of debate about, you know, how much of the economic downturn is in part because of what the government is doing, how much is happening in spite of what the government's doing. You know, in other words, if, if somebody else had won that election last year, how similar or how different would the economic situation today be? And there's there's no way of knowing that, right? It presents that, that kind of counterfactual. But I, I think there is concern that some of what the government's doing or is, is moving toward doing is, if nothing else, undermining confidence. And I think what businesses and employers are looking for is reason to be optimistic and reason to be confident and reason to say, you know what, things are going to be better a year from now, and, and I'm going to start planning to expand, or I'm, you know, I'm going to start planning to, to hire additional people. That's what businesses are looking for, and, and frankly, it, it should be, and ostensibly it is what the government is looking for. They want to see job creation. And so that's what everybody wants. Can we sit down and find out how best to get to that point? And if businesses uh, are, are telling the government that, look, this is hurting us, the government should listen. 
Yeah, this letter that uh, has been written, by the way, on behalf of this group, uh, Alberta Enterprise Group, to uh, the Premier... Well, 15 to, associations. Right. They're, they're one of them, yeah. Well, I can read them off if you'd like. Alberta Enterprise Group, Alberta Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Canadian Association of Geophysical Contractors, Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors, Canadian Home Builders Association, Alberta, Canadian Institute of Steel, Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, Landscape Alberta, Merit Contractors Association, Petroleum Services Association of Canada, Progressive Contractors Association of Canada, Restaurants Canada, Retail Council of Canada, The Talent Pool. So we have this group that says, and this is a nice letter too, it says, look, we know you guys have a difficult job. Could we please talk? Because we think that you might have some good ideas, but also some bad ideas, and we have good ideas that we'd like to share with you. All right. Let's get David McLean, and he's a vice president of the uh, Alberta Enterprise Group. David, thanks for making some time for us here. Oh, thanks for having me here. All right. So what what prompted this? Well, we're all hearing it from our members. Uh, You know, everybody in Alberta knows somebody who's lost a job. Everybody knows a business that's cutting back. Um, And it was it was just too much to ignore uh, for for our our members as, as organizations. And it was time to publicly say, put on the record that calling on the government to kind of do no no harm in the future, to um, maintain a focus on Alberta's competitiveness as a jurisdiction and ensure that uh, new policies uh, that would further undermine uh, business confidence in Alberta uh, would be avoided at all costs. All right. It seems that this government has struck out to say that um, their primary focus is on individual Albertans. It's on the the good of the people, not the good of the businesses in this province. So at least philosophically, that appears to be where they're coming from. Uh, Is that at odds with the message that you're sending? I don't think so, because what we're talking about is uh, our employees and and their their health and well-being, their their prosperity. And our members need to be able to uh, have the conditions right so that they can succeed as business leaders and, and business owners, business operators. And so that means we need to have the fundamentals right. So I think they're one and the same. The health of employers uh, is, is one and the same. It's, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. Well, look, I mean, the government has a mandate, right? I mean, we have a majority government. They have that, that mandate in that sense, and they have promises to, to fulfill. And so they would argue then that they're, they're acting on those promises, and that they made those promises in the first place because they believe that it would be good for Alberta. So if they're going to argue that they're doing what they promised to do and they were elected by Albertans, what do you say to that? I, I agree. Uh, Albertans voted for change in the last election, and we accept that and we, we embrace that. However, the policies that we've seen, and there's some big ones, the, the, the carbon tax is going to be implemented next year, uh, significant increase in corporate income tax and personal income taxes for that matter, um, increases to the minimum wage, fundamentally alter the landscape uh, upon which our, our, our member businesses operate. Um, and so, and, and those things were commitments by the government. They're following through on their commitments, and we understand and respect that. What we're suggesting is, with a, with the budget a couple weeks out, um, let's let's have some confidence that we're not going to see more policies that, that that increase the cost of doing business, and let's also get together and have a conversation about what the path forward is. There's a lot of expertise amongst our member organizations. And we are happy, in fact, looking forward to talking to the provincial government and sharing some of that expertise and advice with them. Then what what suggestions will you have for them if you do get the opportunity to have an audience with the Premier? 
Well, you know, the, with with respect to the carbon tax, the carbon tax is is the single biggest policy at stake here, and and we think we need to find a way to to make it rev- truly revenue neutral, because as it stands next year, businesses and individuals will be forking over another three billion dollars to to the government. That's a significant cost uh, to the to the economy. In British Columbia, for example, they've done their best uh, to to make it revenue neutral by altering or reducing other tax rates so that it kind of comes out in the wash. We understand the need to address climate change. We understand the logic behind having a a carbon tax in Alberta, a price on carbon. But uh, that's coming right out of our businesses' pockets, and that limits their ability to, to hire more employees and to grow their businesses. So let's make that revenue neutral. Now, with regard to the, the Alberta, the Alberta government had a, had a, a policy proposed that would, was a job creation tax credit, um, and that is it appears as though the government's walking away from that or, or backing away from that policy. Well, what's next? What's what's the path forward after that? Are there other things we can do in terms of tax incentives to to encourage growth? Those are the kind of conversations we'd be looking at having. Well, take the, the carbon tax as an example, right? And uh, we, we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know how it's going to work. And uh, I guess we have to await those details. So uh, are, are you jumping the gun on this, or do you think that this is actually an ideal time to have that conversation so we can figure this out going forward? Well, you're right. We, we, the, the details aren't uh, haven't been firmed up. But we do know that it's going to be a cost, and it's going to be passed through uh, the cost of fuel, and uh, uh, any business that that consumes a, a lot of fuel is going to be paying uh, a significant price for that. And uh, so, uh, you know, we know that it's going to cost. We know from the the climate change, the climate leadership panel's report that it's going to cost around three billion dollars. Um, so that's let's find a way to kind of alleviate or reduce the burden, particularly on small and medium-sized businesses. That's that's kind of where our focus is at the moment. But it's a policy that, that certainly will bring in significant costs to businesses. Uh, David, I noticed that Restaurants Canada is on board with um, with this letter, uh, is this uh, signatory, if you will, um, which indicates to me that uh, there, there's something in this about the minimum wage. Yeah, and we we mentioned the minimum wage specifically in the in the letter. Uh, the the minimum wage increase to fifteen is a big boost. It's a big jump in the cost of business for for people in the hospitality and services business. No no, uh, make no mistake about it. It's a it's a big deal, and uh, uh, we'd like to see at least have a conversation about perhaps stretching that out further into the future. Uh, the reality is that this is a bad time uh, economically to implement these measures. Um, it, we're we're paying higher costs as businesses at a time when we most need a boost, and so that's why that's kind of what brought this conversation about. We want to have a conversation about how we can address those challenges for businesses. Right, and I think that that's ultimately what this is going to come down to. I mean, mm-hmm. are you are you suggesting then that um, the policies of the NDP would be okay if they brought them in in two years instead of currently under the current situation? Well, even with regard to minimum wage, we knew there was some certainty as the minimum wage was regularly increased with with inflation and cost of living. Um, that's that's how it was being adjusted in the past. Now, the the jump to 15 is is above and beyond uh, inflation and cost of living, so that's up for discussion in our view. And uh, we ought to wonder if this is a good time uh, to dramatically increase the cost of labor for for folks in the in the restaurant and hospitality business. Well, it's interesting because you know the premier has has hinted on more than one occasion that the pace of this increase that that's up for negotiation. That that they might slow the pace. 
But it still seems as though the goal of $15 an hour by uh, 2018, that, 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 that remains firm. So even if they slow the pace, we're still going to get there. And if it means a big jump from 2017 to 2018, then I guess that, that's going to have to happen. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's built into the business plans of, of all Alberta businesses, particularly those in the service and hospitality sectors. So, um, you know, it's, it's one, it's one, it's part of the mix. It's one of the issues that we want to discuss. And it's one of the concerns we have as business leaders. David, here's something that concerns me. Um, you know, we've been through oil downturns before, and there are layoffs in the oil sector, and then the price of the barrel recovers, and then those people get hired back. Those jobs come back. But yeah. when we have situations where, like, a factory closes or where a business shutters in a jurisdiction, uh, when the economy recovers, those jobs don't necessarily come back. So how much of no. that are we experiencing in Alberta right now? Well, it's hard to say. Um, employment numbers in Alberta are actually still pretty strong. Uh, so we don't want to overstate the problem, but the, the, the trend lines are going in the wrong direction, right? So if you look at Alberta on, uh, in, in, in a national perspective, we still have a very strong employment rate, um, but that number is dropping. And so uh, we have to be proactive in, in how, we, how we address it. Now, uh, I think that we're experiencing the kind of downturn that Alberta will look dramatically different when we come out of it uh, and when we come out of it in the next couple of years. So there will be some jobs that we never get back. I think we're going, we undergoing a fundamental transformation of the economy. Well, in, and there are bigger forces driving the economy. How much impact can the province have one way or the other? Well, over time, over the long term, uh, they can have a big impact. I mean, we know that the previous uh, tax structure, I mean, uh, the, what, what we used to call the Alberta Advantage, paid off pretty big dividends for Albertans. I mean, we had economic growth and diversification, the likes of which we had never seen before. So we had some success. We had uh, some sustained economic growth under a policy that said we're going to have the lowest tax rates and the, and the best regulations in the country. Now, we've moved away from that, that policy, um, and it's yet to be seen what the long-term impact will be. But we do know that that just uh, that the increased cost of doing business in Alberta is a concern, and it's not helping. This letter was just published, right? It's uh, the ink is still wet, as it were. Correct. Uh, have yeah. you have you heard anything still from uh, from the government? Uh, they've acknowledged receipt of it, yeah. uh, so we know they have it, and uh, we're still waiting for for um, some sort of uh, official response. All right, and I, I, I know you're hopeful. I just I just feel as though. The mandate and the the fact that and the timing are, are their trump cards, but <laughs> it's my conjecture. We'll see, David. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. I mean, I think uh, we we've my organization, for example, has had a great relationship with the government, so uh, we know that uh, they're open to to these conversations. We know that the economy is a priority, but we needed to to show and be seen publicly to be speaking out on behalf of our members who many of whom are really hurting at this time. Right. All right. David, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. There you go. That's David McLean. He's uh, vice president of the Alberta Enterprise Group, one of the many signatories uh, to this open letter to the premier that they've released today. So this is in a nutshell is what they're saying. They're, they're saying that, look, we asked for two things regarding the budget, a moratorium on major new public policies that will have a detrimental impact on the ability of business to create and preserve jobs. We ask that any tax increases be categorically ruled out 
The proposed increase in the minimum wage be delayed and the coming carbon tax be made truly revenue neutral with offsetting tax reductions. They also want the government to move quickly on a number of other areas that will allow businesses and their employees to confidently make decisions with certainty about the environment within which they operate. So they're, they're looking for some movement on the policy side, but also looking for some, you know, some clarity and, and some certainty from government. For example, as they put out uh, this potential job creation strategy, they'd like to see details on that. We're going to take a, a pause right here. We're curious to know what you think. 974-8255. Um, you know, look, I'm hopeful and I'm an optimist, but this won't work. <laughs> the NDP is not going to acquiesce to any of their uh, demands or desires uh, because this group is basically offering a poison pill to the government. We'll get into that a bit further after this break. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Nine seven four eight two five five. Some time for your phone calls here. Your thoughts on what you've heard from this this coalition of different business groups. We heard from Alberta Enterprise Group. We got the road builders and heavy construction. We've got oil well drilling. We've got home builders. We've got steel manufacturers. We've got uh, petroleum services, restaurants, Canada Retail Council of Canada. So really, a, a pretty broad cross section of business groups in in Alberta. It's not just oil companies uh, concerned about what's happening. It's businesses right across the spectrum. And I, I don't know if they have all the answers necessarily. They're coming at it, and maybe in some cases, from, from their own sort of narrow perspective, that this is what our particular industry is dealing with right now. But I, I do think the Alberta government should should listen to them. What uh, What's the NDP's primary objective here? Is it to correct the economy or cure the economy or do what's good for the economy, or is it to get reelected? To, to stage themselves for four more years of power in 2019. Because what this letter effectively asks the NDP to do is to take a poison pill and, you know, break a whole bunch of campaign promises. This is a party that positions itself as, um, the worker, working person's party, you know, the little guy's party, uh, the party of the middle class, not the party that's beholden to the corporate, uh, uh superstructure, not the party, uh, that has a, a pipeline to the corner office. So, if if these business interests, and by the way, correct as they are, if these business interests are able to sway the NDP and make the NDP say, okay, we'll delay these policy decisions, then the NDP is just basically, you know, bent over the barrel. They, they've they've done exactly what they said that they did not represent uh, leading up to May fifth. So so listen, I mean, listen, there's there's two ways of thinking about how that last election went down. It's either it was a protest vote and we really don't want the NDP government, or there's a lot of people that do want an NDP government. And if the latter's the case, they certainly don't want them to take this letter and say, yeah, you guys are right, we'll do that. Right. Well, I mean, democracy is democracy. There's way, no way of knowing what's in the minds of voters. So I, I don't think we can fall into this trap of saying, you know, X government or Y government was an accidental government. It's irrelevant. They're the government. They won the election. That's how democracy works. This is David. David, go ahead. Yes, good morning. My question is, how skewed is the Alberta economy? Uh, what's that? David, a little closer to the phone, please. What were you saying? I said, how skewed uh, to an extreme is the Alberta economy? I look at it very simply as bad breathing one way. Suck in the air, but never blow it out. It okay. can't be done. They're, you know, they, they, they call it the business cycle, which is up and down. People come in, they take chances, they take risks. But every time you try something, and it's a large risk, you change the economy. There's a lot of people here living in uh, very expensive houses in the west part of the city of Calgary that used to be owned by farmers 
Right. And people who had horses. What, what's the point you're getting at, though? The point I'm getting at is this. The uh, letters, I was listening to the people involved with the letter, and it strikes me as these are, they, they've only been one way. They, they've been growing and growing. Well, how many Lamborghini okay. dealerships yeah. are you going to have? I get what you're saying. Yeah, listen, I mean, it, it's difficult to deal with contractions when you've been just growing, growing, steadily growing, growing for a very long time. Um, but I think that there's a lot of businesses that understand that they have some sort of valves uh, that they can release. You know, they can do things like uh, cut labor, cut costs in certain areas, uh, close stores, uh, reopen them when the economy recovers and that sort of thing. So um, I, I, what I'm hearing is is these uh, business people saying, look, we would rather not have to lay off more people just for the survival of our business so that we're around when the economy recovers, because that's how they react. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, the NDP can't blink and won't blink on the corporate tax increase, uh, on the minimum wage increase, uh, because they campaigned specifically on those. I think they're going to argue that there was a lot of consultation on the on the carbon tax, that they're going to do it in a way where it, it won't be detrimental to business. Uh, so we'll have to see what that looks like. But at the same time, you know, they've, they've talked a good game about uh, saying, you know what, we're, we're, we're interested in jobs and we want to make sure that, um, you know, jobs are being created. And they've talked a lot about diversification. So I, I think those outside of the oil sector who are saying, OK, well, here's what we need uh, to grow and to be a, a bigger part of, of Alberta's economy. Then they do well to listen to that. Let's go to Pete online, too. Hi, Pete. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'd just uh, like to raise two points. So um, I think. Notley's uh, little road comments kind of indicate that she's getting a little bit uh, flustered and she might be realizing this might be a one-shot deal. I think they're trying to round through as many uh, policies as they can. So I don't think much is going to change on that front. But um, your guest you had on uh, was mentioning that Alberta still has a strong employment rate. Um, that might be true in a lot of cases, but when you look at the service sector of the oil fields, um, like you hear a lot of uh, 10% wage cuts, but that, that doesn't really paint the full picture because, I mean, where I was working, it was about 30 to 40% of the work that we used to have. So right, yeah. you factor 10% in on that, that's about a third of your wages yeah, I you think, used to be making. So. Yeah, I think, listen, I, I'll say this about the employment number in this province. It's as bad as it's been in a long time, and that's all that matters. I mean, there's a headline last week that said uh, Cal- uh, Alberta's employment uh, unemployment rate is higher than Quebec's for the first time, and, and, like, just discount that stuff. Look at it this way, right? If you were bleeding, if you had an open wound and you were bleeding, and on the way to the hospital you saw, saw somebody who had it worse than you, would you stop going to the hospital? The point is is that there's only one economy that really matters to the government of Alberta, and it's this one. And we don't need to compare ourselves to other jurisdictions. We should always be uh, Excelsior. Well, but at the same time, I, I think we should recognize that even at our worst, we, we should recognize our, our comparable strengths and advantages. I mean, you, you should uh, folks should go to McLean's uh, magazine, uh, their website, and read the piece I got up on, on New Brunswick's economy. Right, yeah. And just what a disaster it is that, that New Brunswick is essentially collapsing, and uh, it's pretty bleak. That's what bad government can get you. But you would go to the hospital still. You know what I'm saying. You wouldn't just bleed. I suppose not. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about one sector of the economy, and, and one that's certainly evolving and changing and maybe even growing, that, that, that industry that gets us to where we need to go. We used to call it the taxi industry, but maybe that's an antiquated way of, of looking at it. There's been a lot of talk about uh, ride-sharing and companies like Uber and, and how we need to embrace the future. So we're going to find out about one 
local upstart, local in the sense that this is an Alberta company. They're launching in Edmonton, maybe in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Tap car, they're called. We're going to find out more about that in a few minutes here. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. Station, station. Well, it's 2016, Rogers, you well know. It's uh, presidential election year. Late. It's uh, we, we have the February 29th uh, thing happening this year. And it's also uh, an Olympic year, a summer Olympic year. Right. Not a winter Olympic year. Uh, but it's the Summer Olympics. Uh, they're going to be held in uh, Rio de Janeiro this year. Uh, Brazil, of course, uh, just recently held the uh, the World Cup there. And you would think, wow, I mean, World Cup and now the Olympics, um, this must be great for Brazil. They just must be reaping the benefits. And, you know, I think this is going to be a telling example of why these massive events are, are not good for countries to, to host. Yeah. Um, when we went through the World Cup thing, I mean, it's kind of funny, right? You get, you get a John Oliver piece whenever there's something insanely wrong with the world. But when we went through the whole World Cup thing, we're just talking about the, the enormous and lavish expenditures that the, the country goes through. I mean, they built, didn't they, they built one stadium where they had to like float all the building materials in on barges and then like clear cut some forest to put up this stadium that wasn't going to be used once the World Cup was all said and done. You kind of scratch your heads and you go, why? Yeah, this, you know, the city didn't even have a, a soccer team to play in this stadium. So it's tremendous cost. The countries uh, end up footing the bill. You know, these organizations like FIFA and the IOC, they, they benefit. And then, then what do you have to show for it? You know, it's one thing, I guess, for rich countries who want to splash around some money and, and build some, some Olympic sites that aren't necessarily going to be used. But a country like Brazil, where there's a lot of poverty and a lot of uh, social issues they need to address... Is, is this helping them at all? Yeah, or is right. this counterproductive? Well, the poverty thing is what we're going to focus on in this half-hour segment. And, you know, you talk about rich countries splashing the wealth around. Look, is, is Qatar, by the way, still going to host the World Cup? Is that over now? I believe they still are. Okay, so they're, they're going to have to hold it at a different time of the year. Now, they don't have a tremendous poverty issue in, in Qatar, but uh, uh, they're, that's not going to stop them from bringing other poor people in to build their stadiums and die in the process of doing it. Now, the thing with the Rio de Janeiro Olympics that you may or may not be surprised to find out is that the Olympic Committee is like bulldozing poor neighborhoods to make way for the games and displacing a whole lot of impoverished people. This is something that comes up, I guess, at every Olympics. I mean, uh, Vancouver, there was a story for a couple of days at least that they were going to bust the uh, addicts and the homeless out of the downtown east side and move them out of town for the duration of the Olympics there. We certainly saw uh, that uh, the Sochi Games, the Russians tried to scrub the Olympic city of anything gay leading up to the game. So there, there are some sort of human rights issues that go along with the Olympics. Uh, do they go along with everyone, though? That's kind of the question we want to ask, and we're going to ask our guest, Andrew Zimbalist, who joins us once again, professor of economics at Smith College and author of Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thank you. Good to be with you. You guys just stole all my thunder. I have nothing left to say. <laughs> well, guess guess well, where we yeah, learned that yeah, from, exactly. Andrew. <laughs> But, but you know, we always talk about the, the, the economics of hosting the games because people host the Olympics claiming, oh, there's just going to be a great boom after the Olympics. And, and we've talked to you enough times to know that that never happens. But how often do these gigantic sports competitions, like, oppress the impoverished on the way uh, when the torch is running into town? Right. So you, you, you do have a public debt that has to be paid off. Ba- back in 88, when Calgary 
was was involved. Uh, it was relatively small potatoes to, to what it's been in in this in this century. Mm-hmm. The the last several Summer Olympic Games has, have been up in the neighborhood of fifteen to twenty billion, ex- with the two exceptions. One is Beijing, which was forty four billion, and the other was Sochi, which was between fifty and seventy billion dollars. So you're spending an enormous amount of money, public money, that's coming out of taxpayers' pockets. So that hurts people, but. What you what you guys have mentioned already is that in order to to do the Olympics, if we're talking about the summer games, since we, we're focusing on Rio now, you have to build 35 venues, 35 sporting venues. Then then you need an Olympic village, uh, and you need a broadcast and media center, and you need medical facilities, and you need tremendous amount of infrastructure, transportation and communications, um, and security infrastructure. So you you need a lot of land. Uh, when Barcelona hosted the Olympics in '92, it was using up something like 25% of of its its urban land. Uh, so there's a norm, and on top of all of that, of course, you have to have green space and landscaping and so on. Um, so you're lo- using a lot of land, and if you you you, you need the land and people are living on it, you got to get rid of them. And that's what they did in Rio. And, and in fact, in, in many cases in Rio, what they what they did with the favelas, the shanty towns, uh, and and there are these shanty towns are, are spread all over Rio and, and all over the Rio suburbs. Um, what what they did is they they'd have an Olympic uh, facility, and the shanty towns would be in sight of the facility, and that was of course bad optics, bad optics for television, bad public relations. So they would they would scrub those those favelas also off the map, and they made people move to the western part of Rio. Transportation in Rio is impossible. They had to move essentially two hours away. They're destroying their communities, uplifting the families, the kids from the schools that they're in, the, the, the husbands and wives from the jobs that they're in. So it's very, very socially destructive uh, and dislocating. Um, and apparently the numbers these days are about 60,000 60, people have been moved from their residences in order to make space. And, and in the last two or three weeks, there have been tremendous protests. There's, there's one, um, one favela called Villa Autodromo that's very close to the Olympic, Olympic Stadium in, in a place in Rio that's called Baja da Tijuca. Uh, and there have been people holding out there. Uh, there were, initially, there were 500 families, and today there are 50 families. They've been holding out and refusing to leave and refusing to leave. And the mayor of, of Rio, Eduardo Pais, promised them that they'd be able to stay, but now the police are trying to forcefully remove them, and there's tremendous protests going on. So you have social dislocation. You have uh, people who are already in poverty having their lives made worse, and you're having political instability. All of this, of course, is on top of horrific problems with pollution in the Bay. And, and in the ocean where they're going to have the sailing and canoeing events, and, and the Zika virus, which everybody everybody's quite frightened about. Look, I mean, the, the IOC, I, I'm, you know, to, to take a cynical view, I'm sure they're, they're kind of indifferent to all of that. They're worried about their own bottom line. But, but isn't there a, a PR angle from their perspective? Like, how does this help them? What, why would they select a country like Brazil knowing that we're going to hear about these kinds of stories and, and knowing the, the bad PR that comes along with that? Well, you know, I, you you can ask similar questions about why, why governments do things or why corporations do things. Yeah. People aren't always smart, and the the IOC, the people who vote in the IOC, the International Committee, International Olympic Committee, there are over a hundred of them who who vote on where where they want the Olympics to be held. Uh, they're not always very smart. They're all, often under the influence of of uh, big money or alliances and allegiances that that they or their countries might have 
Um, and, you know, the IOC is, is pretending that it's standing for international peace and environmental sanity and, and uh, frugal economic plans. But uh, the, the people who are making the votes don't have the, the intellectual wherewithal or experience to, to make a sound judgment in these cases. And really, at the end of the day, what, what they're looking for is to, to satisfy when they make the votes to satisfy their friends and allegiances and to find that Olympic city that is willing to invest the most in, in lavish and opulent facilities. And I suppose at the end of the day, too, the IOC can always come back and say, oh, well, they never told us they were going to do that. How could we have possibly known they were going to do that? <clears throat> well, yeah, well, they, there have been ma- major, major problems in, right. in hosting the games. It was, it was some, some of the more serious ones were in Montreal in 1976. Uh, Montreal ended up going nine t- nine times over its original budget. Um, it, it, these days, the average cost overrun is something like three and a half times, which is enormous enough. So you, you know, you get a city to sign on to to a bill that looks like it's going to be six or seven billion dollars, and it ends up being three times that, eighteen to twenty billion dollars. Right. But in Montreal, it was nine times. See, you, there's so much construction that goes on. There's a lot of opportunity for. Uh, backroom dealing and corruption and, and and side payments, and also you know when you build when you build the venue for the Olympics, you, it can't be like a normal project. If you have a normal project, and you're building you, you, you're building some uh, condos or other retail complexes, whatever it is. You sort of have a target date. You say we want to be finished by September 2018, but you get close to 2018, they say you know what, it's going to be delayed two months, and nobody blinks an eye. Right. But you can't you can't do that when you're hosting the Olympics that begin on August 4th. You can't can't say the stadium, the Olympic Stadium, will be ready in two weeks. It's got to be ready on August fourth. And same thing with all of the venues. And so the, the construction companies go to the uh, the organizing committee and they say, "Look, we're going to have. To, if you really want that kind of commitment, we're going to have to prioritize it and transfer resources to it. So instead of charging you ten million dollars for this, we're going to have to charge you fifteen or twenty million dollars." You get in a situation like that. Uh, that nobody really knows how to deal with and hasn't had experience with it, and uh, and, and things get very inefficient. Inefficient. So the, do the countries buy this? Do, do they do they fall into this trap of thinking that there are going to be benefits from from hosting the Olympics, or do do they go into it knowing that you know this is more about the politics and being able to you know cut the ribbon on this this grand event? Right. So I think what happens in the vast majority of cases, not every case, but and it, for instance, it's not happening in Los Angeles right now. But in the vast majority of cases, is you have uh, executives from the construction industry who push the bid, and then you, then they bring along the trade, the the, the trades, the construction trades, uh, to to go to to support them. And then they go to the insurance companies and get some executives there to support them, and they go to the hospitality sector and they get some executives there. Uh, and maybe they go to some investment bankers who are going to help in floating the bonds to pay for all the construction. So they assemble a group of individuals who are pretty powerful and who will privately benefit. And they go, that group then goes to the politicians and gets them to sign on to it. Uh, that's that's the typical uh, the typical process. And, and, of course, there's always a lot of hype about what wonderful things it's going to do and jobs it's going to create for the local economy. Uh, they don't pan out. But it's uh, on that basis and the fact that it's a very popular thing, and it's the the you know it sounds terrific. You're going to be on the world stage. You're going to be in the, on the television sets and in, in two two or three billion living rooms around the world. That all sounds pretty good. And uh, so people sign on on that basis. There there have been a couple of cases, mind you, where the planning was done properly. Los Angeles in '84 and Barcelona in '92. 
I haven't studied it in detail, but I think arguably what happened in Calgary in 88, there are some cities that were uh, going into it with their eyes open. They said, here's, here's how we can make the Olympics work for us, rather than having the IOC say that you have to do this, this, and that, and you have to twist and contort yourself in your city in order to accommodate us, which is, which is the typical pattern. Yeah, we got the weather wrong for a couple of days back in 88, but uh, I think largely <laughs> the party went off okay. So, Andrew, I mean, the, the, we, we called you up to talk about this because we're, we're hearing these kind of horror stories about these favelas that are being bulldozed, yeah, basically. Right. And you talked about the uprooting all these families and the social right. uh, cost uh, of it all. But, you know, we're hearing these from, like, you know, reporters from uh, English newspapers and whatnot. There doesn't seem to be any outcry from... Uh, like human rights groups or, or you know, the, the usual suspects who put infomercials on late at night telling us the horrors of life in different areas. Why do you think that is? Oh, I, I, I'm not sure you're looking in the right places. I think that there's been a lot of outcry, but human rights groups in Brazil and internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, at some level, the situation in Brazil is, is so desperate at this point that the, the critics don't feel like they want to pile on here it's it's this is there's a human tragedy going on right now so you not only have the the favelados the the residents of the favelas who are having their lives dislocated but uh you've got potentially disaster with with pollution issues in rio during the games you've got the zika virus which has all of latin america very worried uh because it leads to all sorts of, of 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 brain damage potentially um, and you have an economy that is falling at two or three percent the GDP is going down unemployment rates are over ten percent inflation rates are over ten percent there's a tremendous corruption scandal that's going on they just they just uh, apprehended Lula who was had been a very popular president for for eight years and they're trying to uh, impeach the, the current president right. Rousseff because of a, a corruption scandal with the national petroleum company Petrobras nothing is going right there everything is falling apart at the seams. They're making announcements now that they're not going to finish some of the, the public transportation uh, metros that were supposed to be finished to take people back and forth between Olympic venues. Uh, so I, I think that as a, to some degree, I think people are so worried about Brazil and concerned that they're, they're not not wanting to stand out and criticize what's going on. Uh, they're simply trying to figure out ways to help. <laughs> Again, that book is called Circus Maximus, the Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. Andrew Zimbalist, great insight as always. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate Bye-bye. it. Uh, Andrew Zimbalist, also an economist at Smith College. Again, Circus Maximus uh, is his book. And uh, so he's written uh, at length about just how big these events have become and, and you know, the, the multitude of downsides for these host nations. Let's take a quick break here and uh, come back with your thoughts as well. 974-8255 if you like. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. Personally speaking, actually, I kind of like the Green Day. It kind of fits with this. Green Day on News Talk 770. Um, I'm personally against, I shouldn't say against, I've lost, the Olympics have lost their luster to me. I don't, like, I, when I was a kid, I was really, like, infatuated with the Olympics. I thought it was romantic, this coming together of world amateur athletes and all this blah, blah, blah. But it's it's just a, such a corrupt uh, sports orgy now. Like, the fact that they'll... To, that they'll level a village so they can hold a track meet is just so strange. To I mean, me. it's I unfortunate because it. I think there are the athletes for whom the Olympics is still the pinnacle, right? And it means so much to them. They work their whole lives towards it. Yeah, and I get that. It's just what the IOC has become and what the event has become, and it's just such a monstrosity. And there's got to be a better way of of doing this. 
Um, you know, I, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that involves. And, uh, you know, the IOC believes that this is what's best for them and they're going to keep making money hand over fest. I mean, nobody forced Brazil to bid for the Olympics in the first place. Uh, and they did. So, I mean, it's, it's on them in large part. Andrew Zimbalist tells us that you've got to like agree to build 35 venues. It, who's loving the kayaking in the Olympics or the canoeing besides Adam Vancouverton? But like, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I get that Olympic soccer is a pretty neat thing. I might have a passing interest in the Olympic golf. I guess, sure, the track and field stuff, why not? You get a lot of bang for your buck out of that facility. But but is the world just going nuts for the European handball at the Olympics or the judo? Like, oh, man, it's I love the Olympics. It's the only time I get to watch judo. Well, what if we had Olympics, a scaled-down Olympics, yeah. it was just in the same city every time? Would it still be as big a deal? Because I, I think countries, and, and we even saw that with all the people who were beating the drum for Toronto in, in 2024 to host the Olympics, and thank goodness we, we dodged that bullet. Just this, well, we're going to be on uh, global television. Everyone's going to see, not global television then, but like television. All around the world. Yeah. Globally. Yeah. Uh, and all this exposure, and you know, we're on the world stage, and it just... It, it doesn't happen. It doesn't pan out. And so it's just we, we got to get off this this thinking that, boy, this is going to be great if we do this. If countries start getting a little more skeptical about just the way that, you know, we've been seeing with the Winter Olympics in 2022, for example, nobody wanted them. So now the IOC has got to go from Korea in 2018 to China in 2022. Mm-hmm. Nobody else wanted to touch it. Maybe some, some good can come from that. Calgary, I think, should be the only city that that bids to host the Olympics, but on the condition that we always host the Olympics. Well, and, and that it doesn't cost us. Well, it would cost us, but we do it every four years. And then, I don't know. I mean, it would never happen. But these, for cities who think that the, the hosting the Olympics is a feather in your hat, I think it's better to literally go out and buy feathers and put them in your hats. Because you'll get the same effect. Yeah. All right. We got to take a break here. Uh, it's Kincaid and Breaking Ridge on News Talk 770.